Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz and I am happy to have you today. I hope you're doing well or as well as you can be. It is a little rough out there, so I appreciate you tuning in. And if you're new around here, wow, have you chosen a good episode to start tuning in because let me tell you, today's episode is a good one. Today, we're speaking with Stu Lanzenberg, the co-founder and CEO of The Grove Collaborative. Grove Collaborative is an online retailer of natural cleaning and personal care products On a personal note, I really like the Grove Collaborative. I really like their products. I really like the brands that they partner with. And I really do believe in their mission to push the consumer economy in a cleaner, more natural space. In March, Grove Collaborative announced that they are vowing to go 100% plastic-free by the year 2025. And that promise encompasses all of their third-party brands, such as Method, Mrs. Myers, Seventh Generation, and a lot of other natural product brands that we know and love. Also, Grove is the only plastic-neutral online retailer in the world. Grove launched in 2016 as a certified B Corp, and the Grove Collaborative creates innovative natural products and offers a curated selection of healthy home essentials, things like cleaning supplies and personal care products. Grove started as a monthly delivery model, and it really aimed to make routine in these natural products, so making the switch to a healthier, more sustainable lifestyle as easy and seamless as possible. Every item Grove offers, both in their flagship collection of the Grove Collaborative brand and their awesome third-party brands, Everything has been thoroughly vetted against strict standards for sustainability, efficacy, and supply chain practices. A lot of what I advocate for here on this podcast when it comes to eco-conscious living are all of those pillars. It's about buying natural products, non-toxic, things that work for your budget and your lifestyle. And Grove Collaborative really hits all those points. A lot of the brands that I opt for for all of these reasons, for my own eco-conscious lifestyle, fall under the Grove umbrella. If I can be real for a second with you guys, I was so excited to have this interview with Stu and have the opportunity to converse a little bit about his entrepreneurship journey and just how the Grove Collaborative has come to be. Because again, I love the brand. I love all the brands they partner with. I am so inspired by their mission statement. I think Stu has done an incredible job in truly supporting a cleaner, greener economy. All of the things that I advocate for, he truly embodies. So this was an awesome experience for me. Stu and I first start off talking about the entrepreneurship journey, like I mentioned, just how the Grove Collaborative came to be and the collection of brands that has really been able to enter the sustainable consumer product space when originally there wasn't that much going on in the mainstream. This conversation also very much supported the idea that businesses can do good, not just do less bad, but actually contribute in a meaningful way to the conservation of natural resources and promoting that thoughtful, non-toxic home that we're all really striving for for whatever reason. Stu and I also get into plastic. The general conversation of plastic is interesting because We understand that plastic is incredibly prevalent. We start getting into why that's the case 
And we also touch on some issues with recycling and the recycling economy. What are some of the gaps and why is that not really the best option for us moving forward? And then again, in the idea of businesses supporting one another, doing good, really pushing for a non-toxic, clean, green, less harmful environment, we talk about the community around mission-driven brands. People want to work for these brands. People want to create these brands. And Stu gets into the idea of brands really lifting each other up and how we can progress as a whole towards a cleaner, more eco-conscious consumer economy if we are supporting these brands and if these brands are supporting one another. I so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I loved listening to it back. And I think this is an episode that will resonate with a lot of people because it is so incredibly full of value. Whether you are interested in the business of it all, if you're interested in the natural resources side of things, if you're interested in consumer products, there's truly something in this for everyone. I feel like Stu has such a wealth of knowledge just because he does touch so many brands. He touches so many sides of this industry and he's on the forefront pushing this clean, green, sustainable economy. We talk a little bit about performative sustainability. We talk a lot about plastic. He gets it inside and out. And this is an episode that I feel like will leave you learning something like you're going to get something out of this. I hope that you really, really enjoy it. If you're new around here or if you have popped in before and you're just popping in again, make sure that you're subscribed to Eco Chic wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever it is that you like to listen, I am there. It helps us out a lot if you subscribe. And plus, you get a notification every single time there's a new episode. And on that note, if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review for the show. It takes five seconds. It's at the bottom of the episode page. And it helps me out a lot. It's how we continue to show up in podcast feeds. It's how we continue to get really awesome guests like Stu Lanzenberg. Also, if you like this episode, if you found it helpful and think it'll help a friend, send this episode to a friend, share it on your Instagram story, share it with your group chat. It's a good one. If you want to hang out with me, the easiest way to do that is on Instagram at Eco Chic Podcast, but all of my social links are always in the show notes. All right, all right, let's get into it. We are speaking today with Stu Lanzenberg, the co-founder and CEO of Grove Collaborative. We are speaking about conscious brands, eco-entrepreneurship, and how we're creating a sustainable consumer economy. Enjoy. Stu, welcome to the show. Welcome to Eco Chic. I'm excited to have you. I would love to just jump right in and hear a little bit about how you got to where you are. Where'd you start? How'd you get to be the, the king of the Grove Collaborative? Gosh. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Great to be on EcoChic. And I don't think I've ever been referred to as the king of the Grove Collaborative. I think collaborative in its very nature probably doesn't lend itself well to kings. I consider myself, you know, I happened to be the first settler, um, but I am, I am just one of many people rowing, pulling the oar hard to make things happen. So I'll tell sort of my, my personal story that, that ends hopefully it doesn't end, but that gets to, uh, to where we are today at Grove. So I grew up in northern Westchester County, sort of like halfway between suburbia and upstate New York, in a family that was, I didn't know it at the time, but fairly ahead of their time from a sustainability perspective. I thought that every kid had to turn the compost bin for one of their chores, and until I was 15 years old, I thought all paper towels were brown. I think my parents were like the biggest customers of seventh generation back when it was a catalog business in the early 90s. When I left home, you know, realized that, gosh, not everybody thinks like I do. And there's a lot of people who make decisions about the products that they buy based on convenience and things 
other than sort of the conscientious value system that I think actually most people share. So I had that upbringing and then started my career in business primarily for a firm called TPG Capital, which is a big investment firm out in California. Um, really great place to, to learn and start my career. And while I was there, I had a weird personal experience that mapped to something I was doing professionally. So I was working a lot and found myself buying just the products that were convenient, right? Um, you know, I, I don't want to name the brands, but brands that didn't line up with my perception of myself as a someone who cares about the environment and someone who really tries to be sustainable and thoughtful in the decisions that I make. And at the same time, I was covering grocery and realized that, came to learn that 70% of Americans prefer conscientious product, but that what's on shelf in brick and mortar is primarily driven by a business model and relationship structure between big CPG companies and big retailers that goes back a long time and doesn't really take into account consumer preference. And so I, I had this personal problem of every time I washed my hands, did the dishes, did the laundry, I had this like cognitive distance of I'm a good person, but the product I'm using doesn't reflect that. And saw that actually the product on shelf just doesn't reflect the American consumer. And so quit my day job and started Grove with the, the fairly simple aspiration of making it easy for folks to find products that line up with the conscientious value system. And I, I believe for what it's worth that a conscientious value system applies to you know, 95% of the people in the country, right? That people genuinely are good. It's just, you know, who has time to think about the dish soap, right? It's, a, it's not high on the priority list for a lot of folks. So I started the company in 2012. And, you know, that was, I guess, gosh, coming up on eight years ago now. And, you know, it wasn't always a super clear road, but that was, that was how I got into it and really started because I believe that this was a category where by using the internet to reach consumers, I mean, it seems obvious now, but eight years ago, this category, nobody was buying dish soap online, you know, really believed that this was an, an area where I could use sort of building direct relationships with consumers to build a really big business, but also create one that, that leaves the world better than we found it. Um, so it's been a, been a super mission-driven organization from the beginning. Very impressive story. And I love how concise it seems that everything lined up. While I'm sure the entrepreneurship journey was not quite as seamless as it may seem in retrospect. I really appreciate that. And I would love to ask you to clarify for an audience, what does the collaborative part of Grove Collaborative really entail? Because I think it is so cool what you are doing with all of these different brands that you've brought under your umbrella. Gosh, that's nice of you to say, Laura. Well, I, I will talk about um, one of the things that didn't go well. I, got, I, I should really be careful to ever make it seem like the pieces you know, fit in place like a puzzle. And I will, I will get to the answer to your question. So when I started the company in 2012, I understood business as spreadsheets. I didn't really understand kind of anything about creating a, a consumer company. And so the first four years from 2012 to 2016 were among the hardest years of certainly my professional career and in many ways, my life. You know, I came from a, a pretty good job before that to four years of absolute obscurity, you know, irrelevant, couldn't raise money, like couldn't recruit team members. I mean, every red flag that your startup is not going well, I mean, we, they were all flying at our company. Um, one of those red flags was that I named the company ePantry in the beginning, which is such an embarrassing name. So I named the company ePantry, which is 
obviously a terrible name in retrospect. And for those first four years, we struggled to make progress. But it was actually a little bit of a blessing that we had. We couldn't raise money because it meant that we didn't focus on scaling. We just focused on our users, right? We spent time with our customer. We spent time understanding what we could build that would be relevant to our community. And after four years of that, we finally were able to sort of pivot the business into what it is today. And a part of that was changing the name. And we actually, I, I remember coming up with the name Grove Collaborative, driving out of a camping trip in, uh, in Jackson. I love the, the word Grove because a Grove sort of by definition isn't one tree, right? And there's like a sense of community there. And went with the word collaborative because I really believe that in order for this, this concept to work, Right? The company's vision statement is that consumer products will be a positive force in human and environmental health. Like, whoa, can we not do that alone? In order for this to work, it has to be, it's not just our company, right? It's the scientists who over the last 30 years have evolved packaging and formulations so the products are efficacious and come from more plant-derived sort of substrates and are healthier for consumers. It's the people who work in every piece of the supply chain, making that product at a price that can be affordable for most Americans. It's the homemakers who are doing, making a really hard choice in switching from a brand that usually their mom and dad used to a brand that aligns better with what we know today. And every piece of that ecosystem has to be a participant. And so we went with the word collaborative really to, to recognize the fact that we're all pulling on the rope in the same direction. And you know, this isn't, this isn't a company about us. It's about what we can do to inspire a broader movement of people. And you know, more than one person has misspelled or mispronounced the company's name, but I think overall I've been, it's been worth it to make sure that the, the ethos of the company is clear. I think that is a very good analogy to say inherently a grove is more than one tree. And I think that's really admirable that you don't want to do this by yourself because I think a lot of the time in the entrepreneurship world, I'm thinking of like when you're watching an episode of Shark Tank, there's always someone to say, I'm the most unique. I have this very specific idea to solve all of these problems. And in order to look towards a cleaner economy, to look towards plastic-free retail, to look at all of these things that we want to see, not just from a climate perspective, from a human health perspective, for brands that align with our values. It can't be just one brand. And I think that's really admirable that you recognize that. And I would love to talk to you a little bit about plastic-free retail or plastic-neutral retail, because I know that Grove has some big commitments. And while they are ambitious commitments, I feel like they are quite attainable given your kind of scope, your, what you're dealing with and what you've already been doing. So I would love to talk to you a little bit about retail and just like the retail space where is the plastic economy really looking like it's going? So that's a big question. I'll start with where Grove is and then I'll start with, I'll, I'll go to where I think the plastic economy is going, which may be a different answer. So for Grove, you know, the company's vision statement, again, really does guide a lot of our thinking. And that is that consumer products will be a positive force for human and environmental health. It's not just less bad, right? Patagonia for a long time had a, a mission statement of do no unnecessary harm. I think they changed it recognizing this too, right? It's the time for do no harm or do no unnecessary harm is past, right? Businesses need to not just like not screw up the world. They need to like fix it. There's stuff to fix. And the biggest problem in our category without question is single use plastic, right? In billions of laundry detergent jugs, hard surface cleaners. I mean, it's just, the list goes on and on. And there's 
been a ecosystem where companies in our space for a long time have been allowed to create single-use plastic waste and they don't have to pay for sort of the after effect, right? They have to pay for the creation of the plastic, but they don't have to pay for whatever happens when the consumer is done with it, right? That externality is borne by society. And for us, you know, in order to get to a net positive place, we sort of were like, let's jump into the hardest wave first. And the biggest problem is single-use plastic. And so we're not at a place where we can be plastic-free today, but we sure know how to get plastic neutral, right? This is, a, this is a well understood concept. And so we understand exactly how much plastic down to the fraction of an ounce, fraction of a gram is in every single product that we sell. And for every gram ounce of plastic that we sell, we collect, we fund the collection and recycling of a, a exact equivalent amount of plastic, usually from ocean bound waterways somewhere in the world. And so as a result, there is no net new plastic created because people are shopping from growth. And so that's, that's something that we could do today, right? We didn't have, and we're a small company. You know, we could get that done. Over the next five years, hopefully we'll be able to eliminate plastic entirely, but this is a really great step along the way. And the reason that I like it the most is, aside from the nuclear family, business is the single most powerful organizing principle in society, right? Like there's no other way that you get hundreds of thousands of people to work on the same project. It's kind of amazing what business has done. But businesses respond to financial incentives. And the fact that we have to pay for the plastic that we ship out and create now, because you have to pay to collect it, for the first time, there's an actual financial incentive to reduce plastic waste. And it's not just for us. A lot of our partner brands, we partner with a great brand called Seventh Generation, for example. You know, when we took this to the Seventh Generation folks, they were psyched about it. And it gives them a financial incentive to innovate plastic out of their products too. And it's one of the reasons I love my job is I get to work with like-minded folks who are, we may not have the same approach to solving problems, but are trying to solve the, the same problems. So, you know, hopefully the impact that it has on the system is that we're more fully accounting for the true cost to society of the products that we create. And I think it's a, it's a really cool first step. And we've actually seen, you know, some of the other brands that we work with say, hey, this is cool. We're going to not just pay to offset the plastic that we sell with growth, but we're going to start doing that across everything we do, right? And if you have to start paying to offset your plastic, you're going to start coming up with ways to get the plastic out of your product, right? And find recyclable or compostable ingredients to replace it. So I'm really excited about that. And I can see the, the behavior change inside our own organization. You know, our business is more than 50% brands that we own. And, you know, we can start there. So that's, that's been really exciting. I will say, I think the overall plastic economy during the pandemic is booming. And that is unfortunate. Everything from takeout to single-use plastic water bottles. I mean, I get it. There's a, there's a trade-off between multi-use and health that's never existed before. And I am an optimist, and so I am hopeful that the spike in single-use plastic consumption that we're seeing now will drive an awareness that makes more people want to reduce their plastic waste. But there's no question that we're going in the wrong direction during the pandemic, perhaps for good reason. The plastic industry is thriving right now, you know, despite I think a lot of folks being focused on thinking about how they can reduce their, their consumption. I was going to ask you about the pandemic next, because I think that there has been a lot of great work done in the last few years. Like, when it comes to single-use plastics, even this skip the straw movement, you know, something that is seemingly quite small gets people thinking a little bit more about their plastic consumption. 
And during the pandemic, it, it makes sense that people are going to want to use more single-use plastics. And I don't necessarily feel as though this is setting us back five years or 10 years or wherever it may be. But I like the idea of putting a price tag on plastic for businesses makes a huge difference because it reminds me a lot of the, the carbon tax. We know that pricing carbon is the best and most impactful way that we can actually decarbonize and get our climate in check. So I think that if you are applying those same principles to plastic, why wouldn't it work? And I think the idea of putting a price on not just plastic production, but also the pollution aspects of things when you're talking about cleaning up waterways, when you're talking about finding these organizations that are doing good versus doing bad, and how do you really, how do you really start moving the economy in a way that, that forces good? Yeah. Totally. I think, so I am a believer that it's hard to change consumer behavior, right? Yes, absolutely. I'll use an example of our paper brand. We own a paper brand called Seedling, which is tree-free paper, plants trees in the U.S. When I started Grove and I told my mom that we were going to sell paper towels, she was like, do not sell paper towels. People should be using like rags and sponges and just, right? So don't sell paper towels. And I was just like, I mean, people are going to use paper towels. But the way we approached that particular problem in that particular industry was first, we're like, what's the most sustainable material that we can use? Turns out it's bamboo, which grows, I think, 30 times more quickly than most of the softwoods that are used for paper production, doesn't have the same need to destroy ecosystems and sequesters five times as much carbon as you know, the traditional softwoods that are used for paper pulping. So first, what's the ingredient? And then how can we create a business model that is true to our vision, right? That leaves the ecosystem it's come from better than it found it. And so for that one, everybody I think knows that the paper industry has been devastating to forestry habitats in, across the world, including in North America. And so for every, I mean, it depends on the product, but we will plant over a million trees in the U.S., between sort of the start of the seedling program in 2022, plant a million trees by 2022 um, through people just buying seedling. And the amazing thing is you don't really have to ask for a consumer behavior change, right? You're still using paper towels. You're still using bath tissue or paper napkins. And, you know, I'm someone who's like been trained my whole life, like do not use paper towels. And every time I pull one off the roll, I feel like totally guilty and like a bad person. And, you know, I see my like three-year-old using a paper towel. I'm like, oh my God, don't do it. But actually every time that she uses paper towel, the world is better off. It's kind of crazy. And so you can create these business models where a portion of the profit goes to fund the rebuilding of the ecosystem. And the really wonderful thing that makes me optimistic is the cost of rebuilding the ecosystems is a tiny fraction of the product, right? Cost, a tiny, tiny fraction. And so the margin hit, it's there, but it's not that big, right? And if you believe, which I do, that having an authentic mission is a sustainable competitive advantage, then it more than offsets whatever that margin hit is. And, you know, I think, I think about sort of our own brand's program and the quality of the people that work in product development for us. Gosh, that team is only at Grove because of the mission. And yeah, I guess we trade away a couple of basis points or a couple of percentage points probably in funding all of the, all the sustainability programs. But we more than make up for it in the quality of the people that we hire, Right. And so I'm an, I'm an optimist because there is enough money in this, in this sort of like cost structure to do this. I will say, you know, this does imply a certain amount of privilege and, you know, our product is not the bottom of the market price to sort of 
mainline mainline top seventy percent of U.S. consumers. Our average average customer makes you know between sixty and eighty five thousand dollars a year, which is above the average household in America, but not by that much. And there definitely is a segment for whom, you know, a lot of these products are are too expensive. But the majority of consumers can participate. So I want to be explicit that we haven't today been able to get the cost structure to a place where we can impact a hundred percent of the sort of family budgets in the U.S. But I feel good that we can reach the majority. I think that's a great way to look at it because even if you're not reaching everyone, the people that you are reaching are being very seriously impacted. And I like the conversation around conscious consumerism, not necessarily having to change consumer habits and not saying don't ever buy paper towels, but just buy from a brand that really aligns with your values. Because I think that conscious consumerism is, it's a term that I really like because it's something I believe in, but it's also a term that gets kind of thrown around in a bad way because it's like, well, are you really being a good consumer if you're still buying things? Is it really so sustainable to continue buying things? Yes. Oh, so but, there's two things here that are totally interesting. If I'm going to buy something, I want to buy it from a brand that aligns with my values. And I want to know that that supply chain was ethical. I want to know that everyone was paid fairly. I want to know that there was no child labor. And I think that there's a lot of issues with people's perception of what a good brand really means. So I think there's two really interesting things. The first is the perception of conscientious brands. And the second is, can consumerism ever jive with sustainability, right? Because, yeah. so I'll take the first one first. I believe that the sort of like millennial Gen Z generation is the first generation that doesn't see conscientious consumerism as a sacrifice. And that is a huge deal. Like I cannot overstate the importance of mind shift on this. When you talk to people who are from you know, Gen X, I think a lot of those folks viewed appropriately you know, sustainability products or conscientious products, sort of like you know, the hemp woven shoes or cleaning products that don't work. Like you know, I joked with some folks who are in the, in the natural products industry for a long time, if you use natural laundry detergent 20 years ago, like clothes are still dirty. It's not true today, right? The, the quality's gotten better. And you know, there are all of these amazing brands that are not a sacrifice. You buy from Grove, that's not a sacrifice. That's better than the other stuff in the market on just about every metric. I think the perception is you can sort of have it all has really changed. And that, you know, the best products now are getting made by conscientious companies. That's a, that's a new idea. It's awesome to see so many really great, strong consumer brands focusing on sustainability. The, the up-and-comers and bigger, bigger legacy brands starting to take it more seriously. I think some of that is just lip service, but some of it's, some of it's genuine. At least they know it counts. So I, I think that shift in consumer perception is potentially the most important because it does allow brands like Seedling to exist, right? Because it is a slight shift in consumer behavior. But people have to believe, oh, right, the innovative companies are probably the ones thinking about sustainability. So that's the first thing. The second thing is really like, this, this goes to the heart of why our, and I'm, I'm going to our company vision statement a lot, but why it's a positive force and not just less bad. Because I don't know how to solve the consumer economy, right? I don't know how to go, go away from the consumer economy across the world. It's, gosh, that's a really hard problem. Harder than I think will get solved in our lifetime. You know, it goes back to sort of like all of the evolutionary, like why, you know, there's a lot of stuff there about why we want to accumulate products and possessions and relative, anyway, not going to go too far off the rails here. 
But I do think that the key is, you know, full cost accounting, which is uh, taking into account every single cost in the supply chain, right? It's the cost to society of the energy. It's the cost of the waste product. It's the cost of the supply chain. It's the cost of everything, right? And by addressing all of those factors, you get closer and closer to a point where you have business models like seedling, which I really believe the more seedling bath tissue people buy, the better the forest will be, right? It's good for global warming to use seedling paper. Totally weird, but true. Absolutely correct. And, you know, if you can make it happen in a category like bath tissue, you make it happen in any category. One of my hopes with Grove, and it's part of why we're plastic neutral, is to eliminate that feeling of trade-off of, I shouldn't be buying because I know that buying is bad for the world, but also, how am I going to do the dishes? Like, so I, I think that that challenge is spot on. And I hope that more companies come up with ways to address it. And if people want to use the, the way that we're doing, that's great. Nothing makes me happier than to see companies knock off our sustainability innovations. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. That's why you came into the space in the first place. And again, I think it goes back to the idea that a grove is inherently more than one tree and you're bringing people along with you. I would love to ask a little bit about how you feel about the trendiness of certain sustainability products and the this display of sustainability that maybe people are wanting to buy into because of whatever perception it gives of them. How do you feel about the trendiness of the sustainability movement? It's kind is of a hard a trick question. I mean, obviously no, it's, I'm for it's, it. Like... Yeah, I'm all for it too, but it's not a trick question at all. Um, I'm curious to know just because I think I see a lot of performative sustainability, so to speak, people yeah. who buy certain products or support certain brands because they think it looks good for them. And, um, and I'm all for it because it's like, and it well, it does look good for them. It does look good for them. If it's, yeah, I guess. So one of the really interesting things about Grove is people assume when I tell them that we sell sustainable home and personal care products on the internet that our customer base is concentrated in New York, Chicago, Boston, LA, San Francisco, DC. Right. And that our customers are probably all, you know, 25 year old bleeding heart liberals. That's not true. Being a good homemaker, which is sort of the core emotional territory that most of our customers have, is something that's, that's true across the societal spectrum. And we have a higher concentration of customers in Kansas than we do in California. We have a higher concentration in Texas than we do in New York. Our best three zip codes are outside of Plano, Texas, Lawrence, Kansas, and Lehigh, Utah, you know, which is not what folks would have thought. But when you come right down to it, climate change has become politicized, which is unfortunate, but it is. And we're not a political company. But you know what's not political? Reducing plastic waste. No one's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm, I'm for more plastic waste. Like Nobody has that opinion. And so when you come down to it on a much more human level, so everybody has a different reason, but fundamentally, if it's because you want to be progressive and show your friends, or if it's because you're raising five kids and homeschooling and want the best products in your house to keep your kids safe, can't think of anything more important than that. Or if it's because you live on a ranch and you, know, you have a, a pretty robust gray water system and you don't want chemicals in that water because it gets reused a bunch of times. Or if you're just someone who's, no one's against planting trees in the US, right? Like seedling plants plant a million trees in the U.S. Who's against that? And so it's been awesome to see how unifying a bunch of the sort of core values can be. And I think you know, different folks, you may view the sustainability trends as through a performative lens. But the thing that I see is people are making changes for reasons that are personal, but there's a real consistent theme that a product that's healthier for families and better for the environment, there's very few people who are against that. 
it's hard to take the other side of that. Absolutely. I think that's a really good way to look at it. I think that's a great way to look at it. My last kind of general pot of questions, I don't want to say last question because I feel like I'm running through so many things in my head of what I want to ask you about, but I'm very curious to know a little bit about maybe some product gaps or gaps in the industry because I feel like you have a great understanding of personal care products, of home products, of things that make a clean, non-toxic home, homemaker, whatever it may be. When we're thinking about things like laundry detergent, it existed, but it wasn't as great as it could be. So do we have anything else like that in the kind of peripheral vision? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of business models that are coming up that are exciting. I mean, some of the obvious ones are refillable vessels, right? So, you know, at Grove, we have the largest uh, program where people have refillable hard surface cleaners, glass, all-purpose, bathroom cleaners, stuff like that, and you buy concentrate from Grove. And that program combined with others will save about a million pounds of plastic this year, um, which is pretty cool. We have that in laundry and a dish and hand and a bunch of different categories where there's a reusable vessel and then we'll send you a refill, which is, I think, a really easy way to do that. You know, in the paper category, we've talked a lot about that. It's really about changing the feedstock um, for the pulping machines to something that's more sustainable. And I think the give back is a, a natural thing to do. So the reason why plastic gets used so much is water. Almost every home or personal care product you buy has water in it, right? You buy a moisturizer, it has water in it. You buy you know, anything aside from almost a bar, it's got water in the product. Anything that has water in it is going to corrode almost any material except plastic, right? It's plastic is really good at holding water. And that's how we ended up with plastic. I mean, laundry detergent, the Grove laundry detergent is, you know, 10, 20 times more concentrated than the typical one you'd buy, but it still has water in it, right? But you ended up with big plastic jugs because laundry detergent is mostly water. So how do you come up with a replacement for holding product that has water in it? And, you know, we think about aluminum and some of the metal materials because the recyclability is so good, but even getting to stability with some of those is a real challenge because you don't want a plastic liner that's going to mess up the recycling ecosystem. And, you know, another problem is everybody recycles differently. And so like, you know, the number seven plastic is like, number seven is, is bullshit, right? Like that just means like someone at a recycling bin is taking that out of the bin in 99% of the country. But people can put a recycling stamp on the bottom and claim it's recyclable. Is it, you know, something like 6% of the plastic in the world gets recycled. So I think that's, that's one of the really interesting things is how are we going to solve that systemically? And, you know, how do you think about like the tooling and some of the precise pieces? How can you replace that with something other than plastic? And we're working pretty hard on that. I think the other thing that's really exciting to me on the I mean, this is true on both home and personal care, but particularly on the personal care side, there's so much innovation from small brands and Grove branched out into clean beauty last year, launched a clean beauty platform called Roven, which is really cool. I recommend checking it out for great clean beauty products, but you've seen a ton of small companies innovate with ingredients to drive strong efficacy without bad chemicals. Ultimately, I believe that for most consumers, if there's no efficacy, you're not going to get repeat. If there's no repeat, who cares? right? A one-time trial doesn't matter. Only a habit matters. And I think the efficacy of natural products is getting so much better. You know, I look at our laundry detergent. Laundry is a super efficacy-driven category for 
obvious reasons, right? You like spill tomato sauce on your shirt. You can tell whether it came out in the wash. Um, you know, our laundry detergent is the best performing natural laundry detergent I think that's ever been created. And it's like better than 90 plus percent of the conventionals out there, which has just never been true before. We have like, you know, 20 person product development team. It's not like we're spending billions of dollars in R&D. But the science is going to get there, right? Where efficacy, and it's getting there, where the efficacy of both, you know, the products you use on your body and the products you use around your home is better for natural products than it is for conventionals. And that I think will be a real turning point in adoption. So I'm really, I'm really excited about that too. But, and the last thing I'll say, sorry, I'm giving way too long an answer to this question, but I'm excited. The last thing I'll say is stepping back, I think the biggest problem in the world of the last 200 years perhaps has been that the smartest people have devoted too much of their time to making money and not enough of their time to the hard societal problems of the day, right? That's how our like world is structured. I mean, it's ridiculous that teachers make what they do and like people who had, I'm not going to pick on a specific low value to society profession that makes a lot of money, but I'm sure you can come up with one, right? Like that is compensation and value desire fundamentally misaligned. But I think for the first time, you're seeing, at least what I see is that the smartest people in the room are focused on mission-driven companies, right? And the people graduating from college today, they'd trade a higher paying job for a job that has purpose 10 times out of 10. And if we can get the next wave of really brilliant people focused on using their time to solve the problems, oh, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna end up in great shape. I'm a really big, like people are the only thing that matters uh, for progress person. I think if you can refocus the best and brightest of our society on let's solve some of these urgent problems, and, you know, it's going to be business people and scientists and mathematicians and musicians, right? Everybody's got their own way to solve the problem. I think that's going to drive huge change. So that's, that's probably, I know that's not like a, what is the gap, but I got into what am I excited about? And that's the that's thing cool. that I'm most excited about. That is super cool. That is, I mean, I think that's a really good way to look at it, that people are the only way to really progress. I'm very aligned with the idea of this new generation of, um, I mean, I'm only 24. I'm talking like I'm like 10,000 years old, but this generation of young kids, like 15, 16 year olds really leading these protests and leading these climate strikes. And it's so inspiring. Totally awesome. It's incredible. Fucking awesome. It's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, There's a, there's a quote that I really love from Margaret Mead, which is never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, empowered citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And then you look and you're like, oh yeah, like Greta's such a badass, right? Yeah. Like she's like, it's amazing what she did. It's amazing. And yeah, totally. I'm like a total, I'm in awe. I'm, I'm 35. I'm not a thousand years old either. But I see, you know, what even people who are born 10 years after me, their perspective, and it's way more informed than mine was at their age. And yeah. it gives me, it gives me hope. And I see the people coming into our company and how they think about their careers versus how people in my age bracket did versus how my parents' age bracket did. It gives me real hope. It gives me real hope. Yeah, it gives me a lot of hope too. And I also feel like there is this emphasis now on very interdisciplinary educations and interdisciplinary careers because you can't just go into the world and saying, well, I'm an economist and I'm really just looking to make graphs or draw my charts or whatever it may be. Or if you're a biologist at the end of the day, is it really just about the animals or how they're interacting with climate change or how they're interacting with different things? And 
I think the the emphasis on interdisciplinary careers and interdisciplinary education is really inspiring because you can care about a lot of things and get a lot of good done under that purview. I have one last question that I was thinking yeah, about anything. that is really, it's really kind of out of left field, but it's more on the business side of Grove. I would love to hear a little bit about how you meet your partners and how you partner with different brands and like what that interaction is like, because I have so much respect for a lot of the brands that have partnered with Grove recently. And I mean, probably, I guess about two years ago now, I really like Sustained Naturals as a brand. I think oh, that they I love do. Sustain. I really like what they do because I feel like I previously was so unaware of the impacts of the rubber industry, of petroleum, of just all the things that go into making a condom, all the other uh, feminine care products that they come out with. I think I was just so unaware of all of these issues that existed before. So once they partnered with Grove, I started looking more deeply into Grove and looking into who you partner with. And I was just so impressed with the variety of brands and the variety of partners that you have. So I would love to hear a little bit about like how that conversation goes and how you find each other and just like yeah. the business side of making partners. Totally. So there's different types of partnerships. And first of all, Sustain is awesome. And if you haven't talked to Mika Hollander, who founded that company, she's like a visionary and inspiration. I'm lucky I get to work with her. She's fantastic. So every, every partnership is different and every brand is different. In the case of Sustain, we actually acquired Sustain. So Sustain is a part of the Grove family now. You know, and that was a situation where I've known and respected the work that Mika's done for five years or sort of started our companies at the same time and loved what she does in both the sexual wellness space. I mean, you talked about the condom industry, but also in period care, which a lot of women put chemicals into the most absorbent part of their body, which is bad, right? And she's done an amazing job. She and Sustain have done an amazing job on advocacy to get ingredient disclosure on tampons, which is like a totally insane thing to have to advocate for. Like, but that's the world we live in, right? Like sometimes you have to work really hard even to get things that you think that you think should be obvious. So every partnership is different. I mean, I think back to some of the early days. Like I remember my first trip out to Vermont to partner with Seventh Generation. I think those, those folks were like, this guy is totally crazy, but we kind of hope it works. So like, you know, we'll support him. Like we hope it works. And, you know, I, that was probably seven years ago. And now I have a seven-year partnership with them. And, you know, Joey, who runs Seventh Generation, now is a good friend. And we've been on this journey sort of together. Mrs. Meyer is actually the first company to sell to us directly. In the early days, we used to buy our product from Amazon and store it in a little, like, oh, your listeners are probably young, so you don't remember that in the early days, there was, like, IT cages in basements where you held servers. So there used to be this thing called servers, where yeah, like in the you. basement of like a whatever business building, there'd be like a cage with a bunch of servers and technology equipment in it. When we started the company, those cages were still there, but they were empty. And there was a server cage in the basement of the like shared co-working space that we were renting. And we used this sort of like five by five server cage to store products that we'd buy from Amazon. And at the end of the day, we'd like pack them up and ship three boxes at a time. And Mrs. Myers was the first company to sell to us directly. And I remember they were like, this is cool. Like, we like the vision. We like the mission. We like that you're calling attention to sustainable brands. And I remember meeting with Adam Lowry from Method. And Adam and Eric were the Method founders. You know, they were entrepreneurs. They were like, oh, it's cool. This guy's trying to innovate in our space. He wants to, he loves Method. He wants to sell a bunch of products, right? Like, they were such good partners for us. Method and 7th Gen both emailed their email lists for us multiple times to get people to grow. I mean, 
those partnerships are awesome. You know, they're, they're now almost a decade long and they've really seen like, okay, this, you know, crazy, I guess, how old was that? 26 or something like that. When I started with this crazy 26 year old, like did a bunch of the stuff he thought he was going to do. Um, and even some stuff he didn't think he was going to do. So those partnerships are, are really deep and really great and honestly really fun because, you know, like you don't go work at method if you don't care about sustainability. That's, you know, some of those partnerships. And then there are newer partnerships where that, you know, we meet these people all different ways. I think about the folks who we partner with on our soap, Grove's Bar Soap. It's actually our best-selling product. Grove Bar Soap, organic Castile soap, incredible company made by this small business in the Pacific Northwest. I got their business card at Expo West, just like walking by. Expo West is a giant natural products expo with like, I don't know, 3,000 exhibitors. Their booth was like unimpressed. And I was just like walking by, grabbed the business card. You got some samples. And we're like, oh, this is pretty cool. Fast forward two, three years, we've helped them fund an expansion of their factory. They're like, they're just like the best people. And that partnership is awesome, forms totally differently. And then, you know, now in the wake of, I think some of the improved public consciousness around racial justice, we have a really big push to bring in brands founded by BIPOC founders, which is really cool. And that's not something that is a strength in our industry, right? Home care doesn't have a lot of minority founded brands, but in the, in the grand scheme of the world, we're like a teeny tiny company. Our whole business will do a single percentage, single like digit percentage of Tide's revenue in the US this year, like small. But in natural products, we're not that small. Like we can help some of these entrepreneurs get traction, get exposure. And so, you know, one of the things I love, you can tell I love the people I work with, is, you know, we meet, we've met folks all different ways throughout the company's history. And a lot of it's serendipity. And so, you know, we meet a brand, we do research on the ingredients, we do research on the team, we do research on the materials they're using for their packaging, making sure sustainability is a real focus, not just lip service. In doing that, you get to meet a lot of really great people. It's also why some of these companies have sort of like picked up on the plastic offset thing and started doing it themselves. Like, what could make me feel sleep better at night than having people do that? It's awesome. Yeah, so, I really yeah, so like that. No, no clear way. And if you're listening and you have a brand and you want to get a hold of us, like you just write into community at grove.co and they'll point you to the right place. I love that. I love that because you're really bringing people up with you. And I appreciate that. I mean, we that. tried to. We tried to. And, you know, look, we grow as the industry grows. We're reliant on their excellent product for people to come back to grow. You know, you discover... Aunt Fanny's Cleaning Vinegar, great brand, where we've partnered with that entrepreneur who is a you know, super compelling story from the beginning. We partnered with them since, you know, they were super, super small. And their product is great. And you can't get it a lot of places. And that helps Grove, right? Helps them, helps Grove, mm-hmm. helps the whole ecosystem. Right. Right. Well, I appreciate that. Stu, thank you so much for joining me. This has been like a treat and a half. I've enjoyed uh, this so much. So I really appreciate it. You're kind to say it, Laura. Thank you for doing thank it. And thank you for the work you do. highlighting and evangelizing the conscientious lifestyle. (laughs) Like you are a part of the people like doing the thing that the world needs. I am, I am really glad to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. You are really too kind. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Stu Lanzenberg, co-founder and CEO of the Grove Collaborative. Like I mentioned, this was a conversation that I very thoroughly enjoyed and I hope you got something out of. 
If you're still listening, don't forget, rate, review, subscribe, share it in the group chat, all that fun stuff. And I look forward to hanging out with you on socials. Can't wait to hear what you thought of this episode. And I will see you next week. Bye, y'all.